This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of William Tell, the most dangerous grocery shopping companion. And you'll learn what item of clothing to make people bow to in order to earn their undying resentment. It's actually pretty much any item of clothing. And on the Critch of the Week, it's the reason why you might actually save your neighbor's life by egging their house. From Bardic, this is Myths and Legends, episode 99, One Shot. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. You probably know of William Tell from two things, an overture and an arrow and an apple. The quote-unquote real William Tell lived in what is now modern-day Switzerland in the 14th century, around the time of the High Middle Ages. The Black Death is wiping out hundreds of millions of people across Europe, the Hundred Years' War is taking lives in Britain and France, and the Crusades are claiming lives in the Middle East. It's not a great time. Like I said, this story takes place in Switzerland, which was under the rule of the Habsburg Monarchy, which would become known as the Austrian Monarchy, or the Austrian Empire. Basically, according to Swiss histories and folklore, the monarchy ruled with a very heavy hand, and there were those among the Swiss that formed a resistance, a rebellion, and William Tell, the hero of our story, was not among them. The hat sat high atop the pole in the middle of the central square. Everyone knew whose it was and what it meant, and they knew what they were expected to do. Bow. It was like a blood clot in the flow of the traffic through the city of Altdorf. The governor, Gessler, an agent of the Austrian oppressors, had marched into the square one fall morning, several soldiers following close behind him with a long pole. He had taken off his hat, the peacock feathers swaying in the wind, and placed it atop the pole, before demanding that the soldiers erected in the center of the city. He then addressed the crowd. To them, Gessler's hat might as well be the man himself, and everyone should treat it with the same amount of respect. It was simple. Anytime someone passed through the city square at Altdorf, they had to bow before the hat. They had to show how loyal and subservient they were. That was all. If you can't tell by his sterling people skills, no one liked Gessler. So his command was met with laughter, and one man, ignoring the governor and his soldiers, walked right past the pole without bowing. Gessler sighed, nodded to his soldiers, and accompanied by the sounds of screaming and cracking bones, the man bowed. Gessler thanked him, announcing that soldiers would be in the square night and day to ensure that everyone followed this simple edict. Most tried to find a way to avoid traveling through the city square altogether. It was a bitter pill to swallow, an act of defeat, to bow for a narcissist that represented the very people who had bled your country dry. But when they had to, most sighed, obeyed, and then got on with their lives, trying to forget the humiliation. William sat in a boat on the edge of Lake Lucerne. He wasn't part of the resistance. Though he hated the Austrians, and Gessler in particular, he was his own man, with a wife and son to look after. Still, while not formally part of the resistance, he could help. A peasant stood helplessly before his boat, drenched and wide-eyed. The governor's horsemen weren't far off, and while the rain had bought this guy some time, he'd be captured and killed by Gessler for sure, 
unless he made a break for it. William looked to the woods, then back to the stranger, and finally motioned for him to get in the boat. The peasant looked past William, out to the lake. There was a tempest, a massive storm over the water. They couldn't go out there. William shrugged, fine. The man could stay here if he wanted. William explained that he had been on these waters his whole life. They would survive, and even if things got really bad, the lake may still take pity on him. But the governor? Never. That was all the man needed to hear, and so he clambered into the boat. William threw him under a tarp. By the time the horsemen arrived at the dock, William and the peasant were hidden by the storm. William didn't ask, and the peasant didn't offer, but he was on the run because he had an altercation with Gessler's seneschal, basically his right-hand man. While the seneschal rode by his house, the peasant's beautiful young wife was out front singing and cleaning, and the seneschal stopped. He dismounted his horse and greeted the nervous girl when he decided that, after a day of riding, he felt dirty. Why didn't she go draw him a bath? She looked to the forest. She had long stopped hearing her husband's axe, and then she looked at the seneschal. She knew who he was. Everyone knew who he was, and he was here. In front of their lonely forest home, sword at his belt, and mindful of twisted intentions, the young woman held back a sob and agreed to draw him a bath. She shuddered as he ran his hands through her hair before disrobing and getting in the tub. She knew it was coming after that and glanced with one last look of hope to the forest, but didn't see anyone. Her attention snapped back to the cabin as the seneschal barked at her. He told her to get in. The water was getting cold. Moments later, she was sprinting to the tree line. She knew it meant death, but he had to catch her first. And since the seneschal was naked, she was at an advantage. She turned a corner and sprawled right into him. Her husband. She broke into sobs and hugged him, telling him the whole story. He seethed with anger, dropping the wood he carried. But not his axe. He marched to the cabin and flung open the door. The seneschal had just risen from the bath and was now standing naked, his back to the peasant. The seneschal laughed and said that he knew she would come around. The water had grown a bit cold, but they could warm it up. Wait. He didn't even have time to raise his hands before the peasant buried his axe in the man's forehead. The seneschal sprayed the peasant with blood and collapsed into the bath. Breathing heavily, the peasant fled the cabin in search of his wife to tell her that she was safe. But he didn't see her. He did, however, see the horsemen approaching. They were the governor's men, ones that had been riding just behind the seneschal. They saw the seneschal's horse tied up outside the peasant's house, the peasant painted in blood and gripping a bloody axe. Before they could even yell halt, the peasant dropped his weapon and took off into the woods. The horsemen gave chase until they met a dead end at Lake Lucerne. When the tempest cleared nearly an hour later, the lake was empty, and the peasant was on his way to join the resistance. Everyone bowed low in the square now. It had only been a few days ago, but the message was clear. One elderly man struggled through the square on a day when Gessler happened to be present. And he either didn't see the hat or didn't think he could rise again if he bowed, but he'd ignored the edict. Surely the governor would take pity on an old, feeble man. He was wrong. Gessler motioned to his men to grab the elderly man, and a crowd quickly formed as Gessler paced around the victim, 
stooped over in the square. Gessler asked loudly if the man knew about the edict. The man nodded. Gessler asked if he saw the hat. The man nodded. But Gessler shook his head. No. No, that couldn't be right. If he saw the hat, he would have bowed. Otherwise, he would be disrespecting his rulers, and they couldn't have that. It was simple. It was a foolish mistake. That was all. The old man had to be blind. The man shook his head, trying to explain he wasn't blind. No? Gessler asked, feigning surprise. Okay, well, let's fix that. The square fell silent, except for the man's screams, as Gessler's soldiers gouged the elderly man's eyes out right there in the square. Everyone saw the hat after that. Everyone bowed. We don't know much about William Tell's life. Other than that, he didn't live in Altdorf. He lived out in the country, out in the forest. Out there, people had to do many things to make ends meet. And luckily, William had found his calling. He was an amazing shot with a crossbow. He was calm and collected and always hit his mark. Everyone knew and respected William and time and time again, people attempted to recruit him as a soldier or a mercenary, but Tell wouldn't have any of it. He didn't want to get involved with the crown or the resistance. He liked his life in the forest with his wife and son. He had turned all the recruiters away when they came asking him to join. He did what was right. And while that put him on the side of the resistance most times, he didn't want to get wrapped up in other people's problems. They had a hard enough time staying alive themselves in 14th century Europe. So, William was a bit of a recluse, though not quite a hermit. He still had to go to Altdorf occasionally. It was there that he and his son, Walter, saw the procession of people making their way through the city square, stopping to bow extra low to the hat. William and Walter could see why. Gessler was there watching over them. William had heard about him. His father-in-law was active in the resistance, and William knew all about Gessler's cruelty. William and Walter walked toward the square, and when the time came, Walter bowed. But William did not. We don't know why he didn't bow, really. In the century since, he became a symbol of Swiss patriotism in the face of oppression, and so there's a temptation to frame him as an honorable man, who wouldn't serve an evil man, who stood tall in the face of oppression, no matter the cost. I also read that he just absentmindedly forgot to bow and tried to walk it back after the fact. Regardless, he did not bow. And as the lone man standing in a sea of people bowing to him, Gessler noticed immediately. The governor rolled his eyes and waved to the soldiers. They knew what to do. Gessler looked down at the countryman, staring defiantly at him. Most people who didn't bow were either too feeble or too drunk to notice. The smart and strong avoided the square when they could. It had been a long time since a strong man dared to defy him. It was time to make an example. William looked at the soldiers roughly taking his son by the neck, and he started to think better of his defiance. Everyone in town knew William Tell by sight. He was the rough hunter who lived in the forest. Everyone but Gessler. The soldiers held him and took the crossbow and arrows from their captive. Gessler sauntered up and studied William and Walter. He chuckled a bit. This one had been stupid enough to bring his kid with him. He could really teach this man a lesson. Gessler addressed the growing crowd, saying that this man refused to bow. Being from the country was no excuse. Everyone should know the law. He asked the man's name. William Tell, William spat back. William, wait, William Tell? 
the William Tell? The one that keeps turning down the captain of my guard? Perfect shot, William Tell? The master of the bow? William was a bit humble, so he just glared silently at Gessler. William was humble, but Walter liked to brag about his father. Yeah, that's my dad, Walter shot back. He can hit anything. (laughs) He could hit an apple at 100 yards. William whipped his head to face Walter. Seriously? Seriously? A smile curled on Gessler's lip. This day just got so much better. An apple at 100 yards, you say? That will be quite a feat. William said that the boy had spoken out of turn. He didn't realize just how difficult something like that was, or just how grounded he was going to be if they made it out of this alive. Gessler reminded everyone that not bowing to the hat was a capital offense. That's just the very reasonable law. But Gessler had a fun game to propose. And by fun game, he meant marksmanship contest, on which William's life depended. You know, potato, potato. Anywho, an apple at 100 yards with that crossbow, and William and Walter could go free. But wait, what could be more interesting than his life depending on him hitting an apple at a distance of an anachronistic football field? Gessler nodded. Yes, he was a cartoonishly evil villain. He was just going to add a little sadistic panache. William would have to hit the apple, of course, but he would have to hit it off his son's head. If he did that, he would live. If he missed the apple or refused to shoot, he would die, and his son would also die. Gessler patted the shocked William Tell on his back. All right, places everyone, Gessler said to the crowd. Let's go to the field in front of the city. We're going to see how good of a shot William is. We'll see how great of a shot William is. I mean, you know. You know how good of a shot he is. He's really good. But that will be right after this. It was never a good day to be firing a loaded weapon at your child. But this was a particularly bad day. It was windy. And as he watched the soldiers walk his boy to the tree 100 yards off, William had to calm himself to keep his hand from shaking. If that started, his boy would surely die. He could see them back Walter up to a tree and then place the apple on his head. The soldiers by Walter waved to the ones by William and the man with his crossbow pressed it into his arms and tossed him an arrow. No, 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 William said, handing the arrow back. Not that one. What? It's an arrow, the guard said. Yeah, but it's not the right one. Apparently the governor thinks I'm a good enough shot to hit an apple on my son's head at 100 yards on a windy day. So how about we defer to my expertise on this one, hmm? The soldier shrugged and handed William the quiver. He tried out several arrows, inspecting them closely and seeing how straight they were. He finally settled on an arrow and loaded it into his crossbow. But before he did that, he snatched another arrow from the bag and placed it into his belt, a detail that did not elude Gessler, watching mere feet behind him. The crowd on the other side hushed to a whisper as William checked the direction of the wind one last time. All the way down there, he could see the apple and his son just beneath it. Walter, to the boy's credit, wasn't scared. He stood with his arms crossed, waiting for all this to be over, waiting to go home with his father. He knew that his father would never shoot him. William wished that he was as confident as his son. He tried to tell himself that this was just another target. He had hit things that were almost this far away before. Almost. He took up the crossbow and aimed. He looked at the tree, the apple, and the boy, 
and prayed that this wasn't the last time he would see his son looking back at him. Calling on all of his experience, training, and ability, William exhaled and fired. Okay, so you know what happens. If you know anything about the story, it's that William Tell shoots the apple off the boy's head, and the son lives. It doesn't say anything about William doing a little victory dance in front of Gessler, or running around for a high-five circle with the crowd before rushing to his son, which is what I would do. William and Walter met halfway, and he lifted the boy off the ground. Walter told him that he knew his dad could do it. But their smiles faded, along with the crowd's cheering at the slow clap ringing out behind them. They looked back to Gessler, fake grin plastered on his face, congratulating William on his shot. Of course, he could live and go back to his little hovel. But before he left, would he permit the governor the briefest indulgence of answering a question? William shrugged. Sure. Gessler said that he noticed William had taken not one arrow, but two arrows from the quiver. One arrow would decide he and his son's fate. Why take two? William set his son down and turned to the man, growing serious. If, by some twitch or trick of the wind, I would have missed the apple on my son's head, William said, and pointed to the arrow in his belt. This next arrow was meant for your heart, and that one would not have missed. The crowd let out a collective gasp. Tyrants are often very well-adjusted people with great senses of humor, so that's why it comes as a complete surprise. Gessler did not take the news of William Tell's assassination intentions lightly. Gessler screeched and snatched the arrow from William's belt. He said that he wouldn't kill this man. After all, he was a man of his word. And William had bought his life with that stunt with his son. William would live. But he would live out the rest of his days in the king's dungeon at Kusnak. Soldiers thundered through the crowd on either side. And William sneered at the governor before turning to his son. He told the boy to run. To go home. The boy looked to his father with love and to Gessler with hatred before bolting off back toward the tree. William waited for the soldiers to come for him. And when Gessler could see that William was going to go quietly, he screamed for the guards to get the boy. However, the crowd that had parted to allow Walter quick passage seemed to have the most difficult time getting out of the way of the soldiers. When the governor's men finally pushed their way through, Walter had already disappeared into the forest. As they sat in the boat, waiting to row across Lake Lucerne, Gessler studied the arrow he had taken from William with a smile. It was not every day someone holds the arrow they were supposed to be assassinated with. And after such a feat, the people would talk about that feat for hundreds of years. Gessler would put William Tell's arrow behind glass in the palace. It would be a wonderful conversation piece for his dinners. Maybe he would even take his guests down to gawk at William languishing, starving in the dungeons. Gessler giggled as he dropped the arrow into a silk pouch and hooked the pouch on his belt. Then, he turned to William and furrowed his brow. He was doing his threatening villain speech. Why was William smiling? William pretended not to smile and looked Gessler square in the eyes. But there was a reason. Lake Lucerne was infamous for its storms that could crop up seemingly without warning. The thing was, if you knew the lake, you knew how to look for the signs. There was always a warning. And William had just seen it. A bad one was coming this way. 
William smirked again as he remembered the words he said to the fleeing woodcutter. Mere weeks ago, the lake might have mercy, but the governor, none. And the lake would have mercy. Of course, William kept all this to himself. Soon, they took off, and he felt the winds change. He could smell the storm coming. It was a matter of minutes before the sky transformed from deep blue to a deep charcoal gray. The soldiers tried to keep the boat on course, but they weren't local. They didn't understand the lake or how to navigate it. After a few minutes, and over the sheets of rain, they heard William speak up from the front of the boat. He said he could get them to safety. Gessler, gripping the edge of the boat for dear life, told him to, yes, do that, please. William held up his wrists. He couldn't drive the boat with his hands in cuffs. Gessler smirked and shook his head. Nice try. William shrugged. Fine, then they'd all die. It didn't matter to him. Seconds later, when a swell nearly overtook the boat, Gessler had a change of heart. He commanded the soldier to go uncuff William, but to keep a sword on him at all times. The soldier obeyed, and soon William was at the helm, steering it back toward shore, toward the way they came. He explained through the rain pelting his face that they couldn't go forward. Not right now. They had to move to shore to get to safety. Then, once the storm passed, they could go row for the dungeon and his life imprisonment. Gessler watched William guide the boat safely through the storm and back to shore. It got to the point where Gessler was almost confident enough to have one of his soldiers take over. Then they saw it. The winds had shifted, and there was one last swell coming their way. It looked big enough to capsize the boat. He looked with panic back to William, who no longer had that calm, no-nonsense look that he always had. Now, he wore a wide, mad grin. Gessler screamed for his soldiers to take back the helm, but it was too late. The waves smashed into the boat, and the soldiers behind William, more concerned with making sure William didn't escape than making sure they were secure, lost their footing and fell. William was bracing himself for impact, and after the boat came out the other side, he jumped to his feet. Gessler, wincing and clutching the side of the boat, looked up to see William rushing past him. The man did the first and last brave thing he ever did in his entire life when he stood up to William trying to escape. William barreled into him, and Gessler took an elbow to the nose before tumbling down into the boat. William looked back with a smirk as he scooped up his crossbow and then leapt from the front of the boat. He landed squarely on a rock, another, and then another, as he bounded toward shore. He had gotten them close enough that he could simply run to shore and disappear into the forest. Into his forest. By the time Gessler rose to his feet, nursing a bloody nose and a bruised ego, he couldn't see William at all. He ordered his soldiers out and into the forest to find the man, but by the time the boat scraped over the rocks to shore and the men rushed into the woods, William was long gone. William put his hand to his side. He was freezing in the Swiss November weather. Still, he had been in worse spots, not many, though. He knew he didn't have long before he froze to death in the early winter temperatures. He had one more place to go. He prayed that his son had made it to his house before Gessler's men, and that he had warned William's wife, and that both had fled to safety, to the resistance. Though he hated Gessler, he had always avoided joining up with the resistance. He had worried that they would get him and his family killed. Ironically, they were now the only place where the people he loved would be safe. But William wasn't going to his home or to the resistance. He had one more thing to do. One more promise to keep.
Gessler sat in the carriage, soaked and sullen. The man who had defied him, who had threatened to assassinate him in front of the whole city, had gotten away. That, combined with the death of his seneschal earlier this month by some bumpkin working with resistance, had made it a very bad month for Gessler. He shuddered again and yelled at the driver. Why were they stopping? The driver called back that there was just some debris piled up on the road. Gessler sighed and slumped back in his chair. He looked out into the forest as the sun was starting to set. Somewhere out there, William Tell was shivering in the night, if he hadn't already joined up with the resistance. As Gessler turned his head away from the forest, something caught his eye at the very last moment, a glint of light on metal, somewhere far off. He snapped back and studied the forest that was already dropping into darkness. Then, he had a thought, but he shook his head. No, that was impossible. No one could move that fast through the forest. Gessler's hand shot reflexively down to that silk pouch, the one that held the arrow that he had confiscated from William right outside the city. The arrow William had threatened him with, the one William had said was meant for his heart. His hand went to the silk pouch, but it wasn't there. William, William had taken it from him when he rammed into him on the boat. William had the arrow. Gessler's gaze shot back to the forest in fear, to where he had seen the glint of metal. Out there, in the forest, exactly where Gessler had seen the glint of his crossbow in the late autumn woods, William took aim and fired. He didn't know that Gessler's death would spark a revolution, or that he would be the face of patriotism for the people that emerged on the other side. He only knew that he had a promise to keep to the man who would not keep his own. He saw Gessler shout frantically to his men to clear the road, to get moving again, just as William's arrow caught him on the left side of his chest. The second arrow had found Gessler's heart after all. William didn't wait to watch the man's soldiers try in vain to save him, or to see Gessler gasp for his last breath in that cold forest. No, William had been on enough hunts to know when an animal was mortally wounded, and Gessler, the scourge of the Swiss people, was dead. William Tell slung his crossbow back over his shoulder. His family was safe, and he could go home. William Tell, the man who didn't want to get involved with the resistance, the one who just wanted to live a quiet life in the forest with his family, became the impetus for the movement's success. A revolution came not two months later, in December of 1303. The resistance flourished, while the Habsburg monarchy struggled to find someone to put the region back in line. The man who just wanted to walk through the city with his son, William Tell, became a symbol of the old Swiss Confederacy. I should also say that I sort of cherry-picked from translations of the original stories in a very famous play by Frederick Schiller to make a more complete story today. Basically, the peasant at the beginning and the old man getting blinded were from the play, but everything else was from the original legend. Oh, and Gessler is mentioned as a governor in the play, but the legends refer to him as a bailiff. Here in the US, bailiff is sort of an officer that provides security in court. Gessler's role in the story was much closer to that of a modern day governor, so I just went with that. Next week is our 141st episode, but our 100th story. And so we're meeting up with some old, old friends, picking up the Arthurian legends where we last left off. Yvain and Gawain go into exile together, and King Arthur gets a present from Yvain's mom that's definitely not a trap. 
cool announcement. Fictional Season 2 launched this week, yesterday actually. It started with an awesome classic sci-fi story by Philip K. Dick. The writer behind the original stories for Blade Runner, Total Recall, Man in the High Castle, and so much more. Also, this season we're trying a weekly schedule, so no more two-week breaks between episodes. It is a perfect time to subscribe. Check out apple.fictional.fm to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and go to fictional.fm for other places to subscribe. Or you can just search Fictional wherever you listen to your podcasts. The creature this week is the cockatrice, from British folklore. The cockatrice is a two-legged serpent-like creature with a rooster's head. It has wings, too. Oh, and it can kill you with its touch, breath, or gaze. It's basically identical to the basilisk, a legendary venomous serpent, but with a rooster's head. If you're wondering how a rooster got dragged into the legendary deadly reptile category, well, it dates back to a famous British author from the 14th century. When writing the Canterbury Tales, Geoffrey Chaucer apparently misspelled basilisk as basilcock. And no joke, a legend was born. People read it and thought, no, that couldn't just be a misspelling. I mean, yeah, it looks a lot like basilisk, except for the end part. You know what it probably is? It's probably exactly like a basilisk, but with a rooster or a cock's head. They also gave it a pretty complex backstory. Either it was hatched by a reptile from a yolkless egg, laid by a nine-year-old chicken between July 24th and August 24th, or it was the product of an egg laid by a male chicken, which, okay, we have some problems right there, and then said egg was incubated by a toad. If your nine-year-old chicken lays an egg in the summer, and you come home to find a snake or a toad sitting on it, there is one surefire way to make sure it won't hatch as a cockatrice. You must snatch it up, stand outside on one side of your house, and chuck the thing over your dwelling to the other side, completely clearing the roof. Helpful tip? This is also a pretty reliable way to make sure any egg does not hatch. If, however, the egg does hatch, and you see a winged reptile with the face of a chicken run off into the woods, and then get reports a little while later about a monster terrorizing the town, you're in trouble. Like I said, it can kill with a glance, so good luck there. In fact, one book I read said that the defense against the cockatrice was to see it before it saw you, and then run away. Which is less a defense and more just retreating, Quick editorial note, that is exactly what I would do if I saw a giant winged lizard with the head of a chicken. The weasel is also apparently immune to the cockatrice's gaze, which, okay, good for weasels. I don't see how that helps us out. And the cockatrice will maybe die at the sound of a rooster's crow. But there is one surefire way to kill it. Grab a mirror and then go out and face the creature that can kill you with its touch, breath, or gaze. If you're feeling very lucky, it might catch its own eye with that mirror and accidentally kill itself. And if you're slightly less lucky, you will probably be killed by its touch, breath, or gaze. And that is why I would opt for the first defense. The one we all run away as fast as we can from the deadly lizard chicken. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.